Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Celine Marr to the show. Celine, welcome. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Celine is the Senior Director of Corporate Sales and Business Development for EMEA at New Relic. They are a comprehensive cloud-based observability platform that helps companies build more perfect software. We're going to have a bit of a broad-ranging topic span because Celine has a quite broad range to what she does for New Relic over in EMEA. Mostly going to be around sales effectiveness and maximizing capacity. We'll probably get a little bit into forecasting. We'll probably get a lot into what it's like to participate in leading the efforts for a EMEA office for a U.S.-based company. Celine, to get to know you, what is one of your favorite sales books of all time? I think the one that made me think probably over the course of my career the most was probably Challenger Sale. When you lived in a sales world for quite a long time, it goes against the curve to challenge the views of the customer. And Challenger Sale was the kind of first entrance for me in terms of me challenging myself on that front and and maybe pushing back to the customer. In Challenger Sale, we talk a lot about bringing something different or something that the customer wasn't already aware of and that being where you kind of add value. Before you joined New Relic, it looks like you were at Sage, which is an EMEA, kind of large EMEA-based SaaS company. So what would it like to make a transition from an EMEA-headquartered company to a US-headquartered company? Yeah, I worked for an extended period of time with Sage, UK-based software company. Pretty unusual to see an organization of that size with that kind of level of customer base to have been founded in the UK and culturally very different. You know, it was an on-prem organization really at that kind of cusp pretty much when I left trying to transition into a cloud-based world. I think the difference or the biggest transition for me really is, you know, I transitioned into born in the cloud uh, SaaS organization where, you know, culturally, even by scale, but how fast it moves, very different organization. So I wouldn't necessarily say UK versus US was the big defining factor. I think it was that kind of transition more from an on-prem, very legacy style business into very cloud native born in the cloud type of organization. So that, for me, was the biggest transition. Is it the speed or is it that the actual sales conversation is markedly different when you move from on-prem to cloud? Predominantly, in my experience in New Relic, I've been focused very heavily on the enterprise space. And I think when you get into that level, the conversation between SaaS versus on-prem, yeah, it's different in the sense of, A lot of organizations that spend a lot of money, particularly either in the monitoring space or the infrastructure space, it's a different conversation for them to have where it's a SaaS product versus actual physical, tangible product that they can see and feel. I guess the other thing I think about when you're working for a US-based company in another region is just time zones. I would assume you get very little actual overlap with the folks in San Francisco. How do you manage the communication? That can be quite challenging. I mean, New Relic as a culture is a fantastic culture. Everybody is very open and and willing to kind of operate outside of the kind of very clear guidelines of a nine to five. We generally have about a two hour layover. So we try to accommodate any kind of cross-functional meetings within those timelines. 
you know, where challenges actually come in is where we try to move more into a global conversation and, you know, include our APJ or APAC colleagues into the conversation as well. It is an organization that is very dedicated to servicing both its customers internally and externally really, really well. And so people I find are happy to accommodate as best they can. It is a challenge. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that there is an eight hour time zone jump. We do also have offices in Atlanta. So you create or you find ways of creating an easier environment to get the job done. I know when people are thinking about opening up offices in EMEA when they're based in the U.S. or vice versa, there's this big question about whether to, I guess, matrix the organization or have a local general manager. So let's say you have sales and customer success, for example, which is very common to move commercial functions right overseas or even marketing. You know, do you either have, you know, your marketing people roll up into headquarters marketing, your salespeople roll up into headquarters sales, or do you have a general manager in the region who is responsible for owning all those functions? I'm curious what you've decided to do in New Relic, whether you have a GM who's responsible for all resources there or people are actually reporting into headquarters folks. We actually have a combination model at the moment. So we do have a GM of EMEA His primary port of report is the sales organization, but has very close dotted lines into organizations that are currently in a global structure. So the likes of finance, marketing, those guys retained a global matrix structure. And actually it works pretty well, if I'm honest, in the sense that, you know, you get a very cohesive very joined up sales organization on the ground. And, you know, if you think about the dynamic of an EMEA market, it's actually quite a complex market in its own right. The land mass is pretty significant. You know, you have a serious variety of cultures and languages at play. So, you know, it's a very complex environment to manage at a sales level. To then have, you know, the layering in of the likes of a finance team and a marketing team and operations team that have that kind of global thread and they're able to then pull from the resources on a global scale, it just lends itself really well to our organization. You know, we're pretty, I would say a pretty lean organization. We're just over 2000 employees globally. And so it really, really counts and matters how you set yourself up. You know, it's important that we have ourselves set up for success. I think the dynamic of those two works really, really well to have that single voice, but also to have the luxury of being able to pull from global resources, I think is a bit of a best of both worlds. Of those sort of sub pieces of EMEA, which ones are generally the most fruitful for US companies or for companies in general to develop new business in? The opportunity differs by region and different regions will be in different states. So, you know, our UK region is pretty well established. We have a good network in that space. But, you know, there are other areas that we are really building into the likes of the Middle East. UAE is obviously a massive market, really untapped potential. I joke with our emerging market leaders that if we're going into the likes of the UAE, you know, any of the kind of MIA regions or even the likes of Russia that, you know, we have the US, we have APAC and we have Europe and then we have the rest of the world. And that kind of is what 
our emerging space feels like because the land mass and the potential markets in that space is just absolutely huge. It can be difficult to really fully comprehend how dynamic and complex running an EMEA market would be. You know, I mean, if you think about it from my perspective, I run a Panamia team. I have messaging that is suitable for the UK market, but could never be played in the French market. And there's different reasons for that. One is obviously it has to be translated. That's the first thing. The second thing is translation doesn't work from A to B. You know, we have to go through C, D, E, F and all the way down to Z in order to get it right for that particular market, because culturally how they do business is very different. One thing that is sort of sweeping is an updated view of how to prospect in a much more personal way. Let's say, you know, if I'm staring at your LinkedIn profile, you have a unique sort of tagline in your LinkedIn profile, which says experiences build character, especially those that challenge the depths of your soul. So like if I were prospecting you, I might say my subject line might be like the depths of your soul, which you would probably recognize and then read on. And then I might somehow segue from that into what we do. I mean, if you think about some of those sub markets and you were just talking about differences, say, culturally between the UK and France, would that approach fly in the UK and or France? I think generally anything that you pull from, from the likes of LinkedIn would be acceptable, particularly those, you know, I think where we find we have the most amount of impact is where we can really find something relatable to that individual. So we try to stay and we do a lot of work with the guys on messaging and how to form messaging, even down to things like, so LinkedIn voicemail obviously now is becoming a big thing trying to formulate what that would look like in the world today. Traction in Europe has got exponentially worse over the last two years since, you know, and GDPR, unbeknownst to the world, existed before May two years ago. Since the emergence of that, people have got obviously far more aware of either their rights or even the business as to, you know, some of the kind of rules and regulations that they must adhere to, to be respectful of somebody's privacy or their data. It's got really, really difficult to get traction. And so we have to really think carefully about how we formulate messaging and what we tag on to. And so what we do a lot with the guys is go through that kind of process of how do you research an individual, an account, a business, and what is it that you're looking for? And if you go back actually to my earlier statement about the challenger sale, it's really about finding where you can add value and where you can nearly challenge their viewpoint, right? So, you know, you're obviously never going to challenge somebody about them saying experience comes from the depths of yourself. But it really is about understanding or trying even to falsify an understanding of an individual at a more personal level. So, you know, we look for things like, you know, do they do podcasts? Have they written blogs or vlogs or whatever it might be to really get a better understanding of what's important to that person? And so we try as best we can to stay away from pre-written messaging, marketing style messaging as best we can. And actually we do things like subject lines that are very, you know, a little bit off the wall, so to speak. Since we're there, I have to ask why that tagline, why experience build character, especially those that challenge the depths of your soul. That's a pretty deep statement. I'll try as best I can to keep it as light as I can. So I have a child who is going through a transgender transition you know, going through that struggle 
with him changes your perspective, I think, on the world. And so what I was trying to say is nobody chooses to have these challenges. Nobody chooses them, particularly the ones that really test you as a person. These are the things that change and shape you. You know, for me, it's changing and shaping me as a leader, how I view people, what I view as important in life. And I think it just changes your perspective on everything. I'm so glad you were open about that. We share this in common. I have a trans child as well, female to male in this instance. And as much love and as much support as you give them, it's still a very, very difficult thing for them. And I can at least say there's uh, in New York, great degree of openness. I don't know what it's like in Ireland right now. I would assume not as open as in the US. You know, one of the things I love about Ireland today, because Ireland really is a very different place to what I grew up in. I'm in my early 40s. It's changed radically in the last 20 years. And a lot of that actually is because of, you know, exactly what I do today. So I run EMEA teams. I, I always joke to say, you know, I mean, at this point, the Irish are a minority on the team because I think there's three of us across, you know, of a team of like 20 odd people. So it's changing drastically. And it's because of the benefits of all of the kind of international trade that we do now. So I have hopes for him that as we continue to transition and obviously there's a new generation and you'll get this Jeremy because you'll see it with your child the next gen has such a different view of gender and trans issues that you know I mean it blows my mind how open and non-judgmental and even non-committal they are at the best of times kind of gives me hope that he will face a brighter future than you know we we worry about things that are, you know, of acceptance and, you know, you know, what kind of challenges will they face in life as they go? And, you know, he's obviously suffered pretty significantly with mental health issues on the back of all of those challenges. And we're still at the start of that journey. You know, he still presents as male, but, you know, he, I had a, a wonderful conversation with him recently and he is a teenager. So wonderful conversations can be few and far between, but he, uh, he expressed a bucket list uh, wish that, you know, top of his bucket list was to present as female. And in my mind, I just thought that was, it was a wonderful way of looking at the world. So if I take the positives from him, I like to think that he has given me a very different perspective on people and the world and what's important in it. I couldn't agree more. And it sounds like you're very attentive to that transition. I also wanted to ask you, you know, about this other topic that I know has been top of mind for you lately around basically sales effectiveness and maximizing capacity. So like, why has that in particular been top of mind for you? Two reasons. In terms of effectiveness, it's pretty clear cut. There's no rocket science to it. You know, when you are prospecting or you live in a world of business development, your traction in that space can be pretty light and, you know, wouldn't be uncommon to have a response rate of one in 10 or, you know, even even less than that. You know, in some instances, you'll see it at about 8%. So if you can tailor a message or you can tailor a cadence to be more effective, you literally can double your productivity overnight, which is astonishing when you live in a world where, you know, most organizations are super lean. And so every person, every minute, every hour, really count. So maximizing our effectiveness and our outreach is hugely important. The other side of that then is capacity as well. You know, you can never scale, particularly in the European market now, when I'm talking about people and recruitment market, it is the most fast paced dynamic 
the jobs market, certainly that I've witnessed. And okay, I said it earlier, I'm in my early 40s. I'm not the oldest person in the world. So being around for long enough to be able to go through a couple of cycles, you know, we are scaling organizations in a SaaS world, growing them at 30, 40% year over year. And to be able to keep up with that level of pace, you know, finding people, you're never going to find them as quick as you scale or grow at a revenue level. So making sure that we're maximizing our capacity within the people that we have is hugely, hugely important. And so, you know, what we want is we want to be able to use tools that give us the ability to measure, monitor and tweak and adjust. So we're actually just coming into our new fiscal year now, the 1st of April. And so the theme coming into the fiscal year with my teams will be quality and capacity. And so worse both on the effectiveness and also on, you know, how well we use the resources and where we point them. I agree with you on the difficulty of finding, recruiting, retraining, motivating talent. They've already are just being inundated with job offers to go elsewhere. And the older you are, the more seasoned you are in your career, you realize that there are up days and down days and you sort of work your way through that. But when you're in your early 20s, you're like, oh, I'm just going to go there. They're going to pay me more anyway. I might as well. You know, particularly in a SaaS world, you know, you're literally scaling at a pace that, you know, if you then coincide that with a jobs market that's super dynamic and everybody is tempted to go everywhere else, trying to scale at the same pace on a people level as your business is actually scaling is quite difficult. So, you know, you then have to kind of broaden your perspective on how you can drive growth outside of just hiring bodies. And that actually is very true to an EMEA market as well. So what you tend to have is lots of little teams. They can be quite complex to manage, but then every ounce of everybody's time within that particular market really, really counts. So having a mechanism to be able to support that is hugely important. When you say lots of little teams, do you mean like a France team and a Nordics team? Yeah. So we actually have, we support about 10 languages. We cover about 110 countries, probably multipliers in terms of dialects. So we cover a couple of dialects in Spanish. We also cover different dialects in Arabic. And so even though you cover Arabic as a language, you're covering multiple dialects within that particular language and likewise within the Spanish region. So you are recruiting both to a culture and a market and, you know, somebody that really understands the how to do business of their particular market with languages, which means often those resources are not transferable. If you're selling to somebody who has one particular dialect, how important is it that you speak their dialect? I'm relating to the US, right, where there's a Southern accent, there's a California accent. Are people more closed off necessarily, or it's just easier to sell with the same dialect and accent? Actually, it's probably more to do with the individual's understanding of that market and how to do business, you know. So you'll see it yourself in in different areas in the US. There'll be different expectations in terms of how you do business. I'll use the Irish as an example. So culturally, the Irish are really open people, you know, we're very happy to kind of engage. We're really engaging nation and culture. And so we generally will do business with anybody, you know, it's very open. I think where the challenge comes in is, or not challenge, I think it's more of an opportunity. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about 
maximizing capacity and effectiveness. And so, you know, in order for us to maximize effectiveness, we really need to understand those nuances of how to do business in the right way. You know, I mean, to have, let's say, somebody that is particularly well versed in selling into the Irish market, selling in theoretically to the Middle East market, you know, they just wouldn't have the understanding that somebody from the Middle East would have about how to sell in that space and, you know, what the expectations are in terms of the sales motion or sales process or even business savviness in that space. So the biggest gain for us really is about us understanding the markets that we play in. And so what we tend to try and do as best we can you know, theoretically, you could get an Irish person that spoke French, right? So you take that box to say, okay, well, they speak French, so they can sell into the French market. So we try to steer away from that. And we actually try to source, they could be native speakers or just even lived in region for a number of years so that they have a real true understanding of the business market in that space. I'm assuming in some roles, it wouldn't be as relevant as it would be in a business development style role, because obviously it's hugely important in those roles where you're reaching out that you understand what the expectation is. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to get contact information. Are there contact sources? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they on social networks of different kinds? How do you get contact information? I think knowing your business and obviously knowing what your potential market looks like and, you know, what the key players within that market. I said earlier as well, a lot of what we do is we work with the enterprise sales teams, you know, at an enterprise level. So these organizations would be pretty well known in our field. The outreach really is built from the bottom up. And again, it goes back to that kind of understanding the customer and their business and, you know, what's really important to them. And LinkedIn, I think, is probably the biggest source of information for most businesses out there without a shadow of a doubt. So you kind of build around the resources that are available to you. When we were talking just before we started recording, you mentioned a sort of interesting model, which is that you have inside salespeople who are prospecting and closing, supporting enterprise field reps. Can you talk a little bit more about that relationship? This really is a build on the atypical business development representative. So, you know, these guys or this part of our team, we actually call them corporate sales account executives. You know, in order for it to kind of translate across the market, it's very atypical of what you would see as an inside sales model. I mentioned theme as well. So my theme for this coming fiscal year is uh, quality and capacity. My theme for last year was alignment. And so what we did was we spent a lot of time last year with the teams, aligning them very closely to either, you know, particular enterprise AEs or an enterprise sales team to work with that particular team or these particular AEs on their sets of accounts. So they were very closely prospecting at a very high level. I would liken it to a hybrid role. So very like a business development manager's role where they work to prospect within their account set. There will be smaller deals that will fall out of that within the expansion space. So an existing customer, you're working with the existing customer or you're trying to find new routes or white space within that existing customer. They have the ability to close business up to a certain point. And outside of that, they'll engage with the AE to kind of work with them on the kind of bigger deals or where they need support. So it's a very complementary relationship, I would say, and works really well when it comes to things like 
account strategy and planning. And it's been one of the key drivers in our success over the last 12 months is really working hand in hand with the sales organization. There is no gap between the two organizations, even though by structure, we sit independently, both of sales and of marketing, which differs wildly depending on the organization you talk to. And ordinarily, you'll see business development teams that either sit within the sales org or they sit within the marketing org in New Relic. The EMEA team sits outside of both the sales org and the marketing org, and we report directly up into the GM for EMEA. So, you know, we've created an environment where we have stuck very closely with the sales teams. You know, it is a build on what we traditionally would have known as a BDR style role. The idea would be is obviously to create capacity for the field sales team so that, you know, those more transactional sales motions can be carried out by the CSAE or the inside sales rep and gives the field aid the time to be kind of out customer facing and working at a more enterprise level. If people want to learn more about opportunities or about New Relic or learn more about you, what's the best way to connect? Definitely look me up on LinkedIn. It's the best way to get in contact with me. Love to hear from you. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.